You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, in St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection. Download and start listening on your phone, your computer, or tablet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Excerpt from The Tract Magazine, 1845. You ask me, boys, said Andrew Bell, what a will-o'-the-wisp is, and I will tell you. At one time, it is called will-o'-the-wisp, and at another, jack-o'-lantern. But both these names mean the same thing. A will-o'-the-wisp is not always to be seen, for I have looked for one for hours without finding it, while at other seasons, without looking for one at all, a will-o'-the-wisp has appeared before me. You need not look for a will-o'-the-wisp on the top of a mountain, or in a dry, sandy lane, or in a cornfield, or on a warm, sunny slope, for these are not the places where it is to be seen. It is in low, marshy meadows, in swamps, and boggy ground that it is most likely to be found. A will-o'-the-wisp is a vapor of an odd kind that takes light and flits and dances out among the bogs that it comes from. Many a nightly traveler has taken it for a taper in a cottage window or for a friendly lantern and been so far misled by it as to find himself, before he was aware, in the watery swamp. Have a care, boys, and let not 
the will of the wisp deceive you? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. I love swamps, marshes, wetlands, bogs. I love all of them, more or less. From a monster perspective, these are areas full of mystery, like a half-opened closet door in a child's bedroom. These are areas that seem to be brimming over with potential as monster habitat. Bog monsters, swamp slobs, skunk apes, lizard man. It's crowded back there in the mud and dark water. And at night... On a warm night, such places are a cacophony of strange noises. Animal cries, insects, birds, creatures looking for mates, creatures looking for food, creatures looking for mates and then becoming food. It's the full spectrum of possible dating outcomes in there. It's no wonder that people forced to walk by such places at night skirt them lightly and see menace in the shadows and reflections. But it's the lights we're here to talk about in this episode. For as long as I can recall, I've heard tales of Will-o'-the-Wisp. The story is usually the same, a warning to be careful of following the wisp, for it always takes you to danger. You might think, with such a universally negative narrative grounding, everyone would avoid even the semblance of these mischievous lights. But I'm here to tell you that just a few weeks ago, nearly everyone in my neighborhood paid illuminated homage to this legendary entity. From its early origin in turnip lanterns to its popular American pumpkin-based decoration, the jack-o'-lantern is a direct reference to the dangerous swamp lights. In this episode, we're going to talk about ghost lights, swamp lights, ball lightning, and a variety of other illuminating topics. When editing this show, I noticed that we left out one, so I'm going to add it here. There's a lot of folklore around phantom lights, and one of the more interesting ones is that such lights lead to or mark the site of buried treasure. While the folklore around this and its ties to witch lore are quite extensive, I'm going to reference a passage from the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. Early in the book, Jonathan Harker has gone to Transylvania to meet the Count for some real estate transactions. On a rather mad coach ride, Harker sees his coach driver get off the coach and head out towards lights in the darkness. Later, when Harker gets to the castle, he inquires of his host about this. Then, as time went on, and I had got somewhat bolder, I asked him of some of the strange things of the preceding night, as, for instance, why the coachman went to the places where he had seen the blue flames. He then explained to me that it was commonly believed that on a certain night of the year, last night, in fact, when all evil spirits are supposed to have unchecked sway, a blue flame is seen over any place where a treasure has been concealed. I meant to discuss this with our guest, researcher and Monster Talk alumnus Jerry Drake, but in the wide-ranging conversation we had, it slipped my mind. But we cover lots of other kinds of lights, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. One caveat. 
For part of the interview, there's a lot of traffic noise. Some of you will be able to ignore this and enjoy the conversations, and others will not. At some point in the interview, adjustments are made and the noise is diminished. But apologies for the audiophiles out there who may be bothered by this. Hopefully, the content of our conversation will bear you through. Karen and I would like to thank Jerry Drake for taking the time to talk to us. And I want to thank Sean Parks, who helped out immensely with the edits on this episode. And he also helped with our previous episode, but I goofed up and forgot to thank him. So, double thanks. All right. Let's put on our swamp waders, roll up our pants, and head out into the wetlands for some... Monster Talk. Welcome back to Monster Talk, Jerry Drake. For those of you who don't know Jerry, he is an independent researcher who's looked into lots of topics that are completely right up our alley, and he's been on a few times now. He, he owes us at least one more visit in the future, because I want to go back to the Bell Witch. Oh, because <laughs> that's just one <laughs> i got excited <laughs> but but right now jerry so uh we're, we're here to talk about well actually a whole bunch of stuff i'm going to probably call mm. this the will of the wisp episode but i also want to touch on swamp gas ghost lights saint Elmo's fire ball lightning earth lights and at least one famous ufos Hope researchers yeah yeah just uh yeah lots of things so I was thinking we could start with Will of the Wisp. Sure. And I, I think that's a natural place to start. You know, that's that's what most people know these things as. And they've they've been around for a long time. I mean, this goes back to – well, I mean, this is one of the things we have to establish. It's kind of like ghost lore. These earth lights exist in every culture on earth. Every culture has a tradition of seeing weird, spooky lights uh, at night. And they factored them – into their mythology. Actually, some show up in the daytime too. But I think the ones that are probably the most famous are the Will of the Wisps. Uh, they're also called Jack o' Lanterns and Hinky Punks and Obi Lanterns. But they're these kind of colorful lights that people, uh, especially in the 18th and 19th century, recorded seeing in swampy, marshy, Moorish places. And then in sort of deep forests, old growth forests in the United States. Early folks, the medieval guys who wrote this stuff down in latin had a word for it that was ignis fatus uh, which means fool's fire and a lot of the variations on it foxfire uh faux follet um just basically mean crazy fire or fool's fire but i think most most people today know it as the will of the wisp largely because of that cartoon and just the way it's come into uh, a oh, folklore which cartoon are you talking about I think there was one called The Will of the Wisp. It's also so. a very popular name for uh, Celtic songs on YouTube, I discovered last night. Yeah. If you Google <laughs> this, you're going to find a lot of people with long hair and beards uh, singing songs called The <laughs> Will of the Wisp or yeah. something like that. All our Alan Moore impersonators. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, right, I do. Right. It's interesting to me because when I was trying to find some of the original folklore, I looked at my own collection and all, all of my books – mostly refer to it as like a well-known folklore without giving any friggin' primary sources where they come from this. And it, and it basically sounds like the sort of swamp version of a, um, a water horse. It's a, don't be lured into the swamps by these fires, me yeah. lads. You know, <laughs> it's, it's bad news. <laughs> I'll give you, a, I'll give you a great primary source. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the denim tracks, uh, but the denim tracks were this thing, um, these collections of English folklore written down by this guy named Michael Asleby Denham. And he was a Yorkshire uh, like merchant trade guy 
who, like everybody in the middle 1800s, got interested in British folklore. And what's famous about denim is that a lot of people, I guess they were put out between about 1892 and 1895, is that we know uh, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, had access to these books and and used them uh, as primary research for uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And a lot of people have hypothesized that the word Hobbit itself comes from the denim tracks because it's mentioned in there. And then there's the denim tracks mention the Will of the Wisp and these legends about these fairy lights leading people, you know, down a, a misbegotten path. And of course, in Lord of the Rings, there's a whole scene where that happens, you know, where Gollum is leading Sam and Frodo through that. Through a dangerous swamp. swamp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he says that line about, you know, if you follow the candles, you'll go down to the in the water and light a little candle of your own. And I mean, that's straight out of the, the, the old denim tracks, which was an attempt to, to record folklore. That's interesting. No, I hadn't. I hadn't read the denim tracks, but a lot of the references I have seem to be from the same genes. Yeah, and I, I think <laughs> the track, yeah. I'm you see, five. you see what I did there. Ignore him and keep talking. Uh, I was trying to come up with a Lena Dunham pun, but I, I never got there. <laughs> but no, seriously, I, they really did, though. In all, in all seriousness, I've, I've found some stuff from the 1840s to the 1880s that I'll put probably in the preamble to the show. It's got some cool yeah. little poems about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's a couple of references in uh, sort of medieval tracks uh, where they, I, but they're lines. They're not big chunky stories. It's like yeah. you know, we're sort of just says, oh, we know about this thing. And don't follow those weird lights, or you'll, uh, or you'll be in serious trouble. And I think there's a reference to spook lights in uh, the saga of Burn Niles, one of the Icelandic sagas. So I mean, they pop up in all these kind of weird places. But one of the frustrating things is you're exactly right. You know, there's no big book of of ghost lights for something that's so common. It's not a phenomenon that. Uh, that, that people really took all that seriously. And it's one of the things in my mind that actually sort of leads me to to think of them in, as, as something a little bit more authentic. And maybe we can talk about that later. But, yeah, you'll find weird stray lines related to them going all the way back in uh, Japanese folklore. And they tend to be associated with fey characters or with these uh, sort of creatures that live in swamps and in the woods. Yeah, the um, I, although you mentioned The Hobbit, I had not made that connection. I don't know why. So there's Robin Goodfellow, and a lot of people used the term Rob and Hob interchangeably. So you got like the Hobgoblin fellow, the character. Devil. Uh, yeah, is uh, the devil. You've got um, Hob's End uh, being mm-hmm. used. The name Hob being sort of an evil, uh, magical name. They, right. they use that in Quatermass in the Pit. Right. But uh, so, yeah, the, the name Hob should have – I can't believe I never connected that to Hobbit. That's really interesting. Right. Like. Yeah. It's like it's like jazz. Uh, it's like fairy jazz. So, so I I think I grew up uh, thinking these were called corpse lights or corpse candles. That was the term Correct. that I'd heard. And Ooh. I don't I don't think that was an Australianism. I think it's probably more of a British term, but it, that was they re- referred specifically to some kind of omen, some kind of warning of impending death and lights that would flit about the home of someone who was going to die. Uh, or along the road leading to the churchyard, that kind of thing. So I'm wondering if, if that's the same thing or you just think it's it, related. It is. And it's interesting if you heard that in Australia because that's the story that I heard coming out of uh, my relatives that lived in 
sort of Western Appalachia, you know, in around the shoals wow. in Alabama. They called them corpse lights there too. And okay. they, you know, I remember my uncle Jack, you know, telling the story about how, you know, if you saw one of these things, it wasn't about don't follow it. It was a uh, uh, sort of a bad omen. And it yeah. meant that either you were going to die or something bad was going to happen to you. And they are fairly common in cemeteries and in places, you know, that are particularly muddy and, and boggy. I've also heard they could be glow worms. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've got to talk about bioluminescence because I think a lot of these lights are caused by what's called foxfire, which um, in the backwoods of Appalachia, if you want to see glowing mushrooms and stuff, they're, they're, they're there. You just have to go out and see them. But there's, you know, fireflies, there's uh, glowworms, and then there's weird fungus that give off these strange lights that sort of, you know, blink and flicker through the, the dark woods. I, I'll link in the show notes to some videos because the foxfire is such a stunning and interesting thing to run into. I've never seen it in real life. I've seen lots of videos. I know lots of people who've seen it, but uh, it's just really weird looking. And, uh, it comes up a lot. We, we've, um, there's multiple stories about, uh, in fact, even in the Kentucky Goblins case, uh, the, yeah. the, uh they, they, there were people who suspected that owls who sometimes, who, listen to me, owls who, let me stop. I can't, I can't stop doing it. Owls that <laughs> nest in old trees might be exposed to this and it would cause them to glow. That's not the first case where people have alleged that. There was actually some cases in the 19 teens, early 20th century, where people talked about glowing owls. And it's, I've looked at the folklore of the literature. So I don't think there's any particular proof that it's ever happened. But it seems like a plausible scenario. <laughs> but, so, but it, yeah, you're, you're <laughs> foreshadowing pretty heavy here. Yeah, <laughs> all of the, all of the natural uh, explanations for these things have that caveat. There's actually no proof. <laughs> so let, let's start with the swamp gas because, like, that's the go-to natural explanation for what a will of the wisp is. It's swamp gas. You know how gas from a swamp will sometimes just spontaneously ignite and burn for 30 to 40 minutes as it moves around. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Now, I, I, I'm lucky. I grew up, uh, my grandfather has like 360 acres and probably 30, something like that, about 30 acres of that is swamp. So I grew up around swamp and fishing in swamps and, you know, spending time around swamps day and night, love swamps. Um, yeah. And if you walk in a swamp, typically if you look down at the ground, You'll see bubbles coming up, and those bubbles are methane gas. And yep. if you uh, are the sort of tedious person who likes to do experiments, you can collect that gas uh, in a jar or something, and you can ignite that gas, and it'll blow. It'll glow. Uh, it'll burn green or orange or blue. It's really interesting. It, what it will not do is sustain burn and then float around. That just doesn't happen. I know we've all lit a fart, Blake. So well, I just. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, um, you know, my dad worked in the propane gas industry for most of his career. And one of the things he was propane interested and propane accessories. in. But yeah, uh, yeah. I provide the people of this community with propane and propane accessories. Childhood pictures of my dad and I are creepy because I really did look like Bobby Hill uh, back in the day. But... <laughs> And we, we lived in an L-shaped house right right north of Dallas, the whole thing. Um, we, he, he was, we were always kind of interested in methane gas because we had those kind of places, you know, around where this stuff would, would kind of let off. And 
sure enough, you know, you could collect a little bit of it and make it pop, but it didn't. <laughs> it didn't light up like a ball of plasma and float around for 30, 30 minutes. I mean, <laughs> that's that's crazy. The first guy to come up with that theory was actually um, Alessandro Volta, uh, you know, pretty serious scientist in 1776. You know, he proposed that, that this stuff was, you know, the result of this excised methane gas that was coming out of the ground. But I, I mean, nobody has ever made this experiment work where natural gas appearing in the environment is somehow spontaneously combusted and then sort of moves around. Uh, so I know that people always suggest swamp gas for everything from the Hopkinsville monsters to these, to these weird uh, earth lights, but I just – I don't buy it because for one thing, these things – if you're ever fortunate or unfortunate enough to see one, look like balls of plasma. They don't look like fires, and they tend to form balls. And they also, um, you know, whatever the phenomenon is, it's not, it's not that. It's it's not a fire. Um, I, and I can believe a lot of other explanations instead of that. Well, this certainly doesn't explain some of the, the earth lights which are seen in more desert regions. Yeah. So I'm sure we'll get into these a bit later. Thinking like the Min Min lights, that there's, I don't think there's any swamp around there. One of the things that I find really interesting and totally frustrating is the most famous lights, the ones that are seen with the most consistency, seem to be the ones that are the easiest to explain. And we can talk about that, obviously, because they're repeatable. But uh, the weird ones are the ones, you know, that people describe. I, I ran into a lady in Texas who said she had seen the Marfa lights. Uh, she came into the land office where I was working one day and, you know, was doing her genealogy research. And, you know, we got it talking about ghosts because she was from Marfa and all that stuff. And she said, yeah, I woke up one night and this ball of light was in my house. Well, I mean, if that story is true, and I have a lot of reasons to believe it isn't because people like to make up stories. But if that story is true, that's that's more like what a will of the wisp is than the Marfa lights, which are a Fata Morgana mirage, you know. And uh, we we can talk about that. But you can go any given night and see. Uh, yeah. You can go any night and see the Marfa lights if you want, and they look kind of weird, but um, they do have a a fairly reasonable explanation. And I think that's true for most of the really the really famous ones. Have you ever seen ball lightning? Me? No, I've never seen ball lightning. Have you, Karen? No, but I hear it used a lot as an explanation um, for, for various phenomena, and I'm just wondering how common it really is. I did some research on ball lightning for this. I can't remember the first time I heard about ball lightning. I want to say in search of, but maybe it was Ripley's. But I was a little kid, and I mean, this is something that I heard heard about in the 70s for sure. And they've only just recently figured out how to reproduce something that's similar to it in the laboratory. But one of the most famous and documented episodes of ball lightning happened in uh, Dartmoor at Whittacombe on the Moor. This freaking church got blown up by this stuff. And, an, and a number of people recorded it. It was this thing called the Great Thunderstorm. It may have came up in your in one of your episodes on the Black Dog. I think they mentioned the storm yeah, in that. Yeah. But, I mean, a lot of people recorded that this ball of fire hit this church. It, it actually straight up killed four people. So there are some some fairly well-documented occurrences of, of, of ball lightning actually doing damage. Well, and I guess one of the other famous cases is a uh, an airplane where a guy right. uh, of some scientific credibility – or I forget what his credentials were, but he's a scientist and he saw it and reported that it sort of like slowly floated up the aisle. Right. 
in the, in the, plane. Uh, in the airplane, which would be peculiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's my personal belief. I don't believe I've ever seen ball lightning. However, I've been at a location where the other people who were with me said they saw a ball lightning. Wow. And can you tell that story? Yeah, I, I was maybe not quite a teenager, maybe so somewhere between 10 and 12. And I was out at a country house uh, visiting with some family. And there was a big electrical storm that came up because it was summertime in Georgia. And the house had wooden floors, you know, highly polished wooden floors. And we were just sort of sitting there talking about stuff. And there was a big thunder clap and, and a, a glowing light sort of zipped across the room and disappeared. Wow. I mean, I saw it, but the woman, the woman who was sort of the matriarch of the, of the household said that it was ball lightning. That's exactly what it was, ball lightning. Cause it, uh, you know, hmm. it appeared to float across the floor. I didn't want to argue with them, especially at the time. I like for every kind of reason, it didn't seem like the sort of thing I wanted to argue with. <laughs> but <laughs> sure. to me, it felt more like a lighting effect. Like the floor was so shiny. Mm-hmm. That it was more like it was reflecting a bright lightning strike outside the house. Uh, and, but, but, but everybody agreed that it was spectacular, whatever it was. And right. You missed it or you, you caught it out of the corner of your eye. No, no. Everybody saw it. It was like, it was stunning. Right. But I just, my interpretation of it was it was a reflection of something outside, not an actual piece of material inside the house. Right. right? So, and, and it felt like it was so bright. It was, um, Kind of like burned into your retina. So you sort of could see the thing after it had happened. It was like, like a, like an arc light, mm-hmm. you know, like if you ever see one of those, it was really, really bright. So I, I'm very suspicious, but, but the other people there, if you ask them to recount it, they would say they saw ball lightning. I, I just, even at that time, and I would certainly not have said I was a skeptic at the time, but I didn't think it was supernatural. I thought it was, uh, optical. Right. Well, you know, there there actually is a phenomenon that occurs uh, that's well documented. I mean, and, and it can be replicated in the lab called St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, sailors used to observe it. It's named after St. Erasmus, uh, who's their patron saint. They used to observe it on the mastheads where they had lightning rods on the uh, tips of, uh, of their ships. And what it was caused from was uh, the static electricity that would build up around these iron uh, rods would actually luminesce in the middle of the night. And you would see these weird sort of balls of, of light. Ben, ben Franklin recorded the phenomenon as part of his experiments ahead of thunderstorms. And then, of course, more famously, it's the Foo Fighters in World War II. As those engines are cutting through the humidity in the sky, uh, the blades are creating static discharge that puffs off just like the static discharge on your finger, but with a lot more um, ferocity. So, you know... It's it's not unexpected to see weird static discharges ahead of of lightning. I mean, lightning's real, right? So yeah. stuff associated with it can happen. And I think I think probably some of this stuff, especially stuff that happens out at sea, uh, before they properly grounded ships and things like that, um, was related to the the static phenomena. I, I have some '80s and '90s pop culture as well. <laughs> yeah, seeing almost fire and seeing almost fire. Google St. Elmo's Fire. It'll take you a while to find some research because of that damn movie. But (laughs) total sideline, I have found that static electricity is is misinterpreted for stuff a lot. And and I bring this up because it just happened this weekend. You know, one of the more interesting cases is I I was on a ghost hunt in Gettysburg. 
and all these people were getting they had their emf detectors and all this stuff out and there was this big iron trunk i mean this this thing was a monster it must have been as big as the desk i'm sitting at here and they were all crowded around with their emf detectors and they're spiking out with this electric stuff and of course it's february it's freezing cold old house and i walk up and put put my hand on it and you can see that arc of blue light just blam <laughs> come across my hand and then their emf detectors went totally flat you know basically all of us shuffling around in our wool coats and everything in that cold atmosphere had had turned that thing into a static battery and we were out at a ghost hunt just this past weekend in an old train tunnel, and people had their EMF detectors. And it's like, well, when we first went in here, there was no charge, and now it's charged up. And it's like, well, the humidity is so thick, you can see it. And we're all in here in, in cotton and wool coats, walking around, breathing, talking, and moving. It's it's a low-grade static uh, discharge that's building up in the – you know, it's electrons, baby. It's not, it's not ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> you must be popular amongst them. Yeah. Not really. <laughs> Here's the fun ruiners. <laughs> so yeah, well, well, ball lightning is interesting because I think a lot of people think it's a real phenomena. I mean, it's just um, it would be highly rare. I guess would be one of the things about it. Sprites are analogous. They were only really confirmed. People had been seeing these high atmospheric lightning pulses that precede lightning bolts for centuries. And I think they were only identified uh, recently. And I mean like real recently, within the last 10 to 15 years through uh, through uh, satellite photography. Interesting. So there's still some weird stuff out there. Yeah, well, I, you know, we as a, as a culture, I, I, I mean – in America, at least in general, most of us are not farmers and we're not out in the world, you know, wandering right. around in the wild during thunderstorms and such. Uh, you know, you don't even farmers typically, you know, they've got equipment and they might not have to work in a big thunderstorm. So it's a much smaller amount of the population percentage wise that has to be exposed to the, the real world during these kind of weather events, I guess. Sure. And there's so much light pollution now. I, I wanted to bring up Foxfire. Yeah, that too. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of these events are, you know, easily explained away as car headlights, trains, planes, all that stuff. But, right. you know, there was once a time when those things didn't exist and people still saw these these weird lights. And Foxfire is a great example. Like, you know, I saw it one time at a Boy Scout camp. It was essentially in a dark zone. Like this was a 700 acre, you know, West Texas Boy Scout camp full of, you know, mesquite scrub and, and, you know, a lot of loam on the ground. And uh, sure enough, you could see that stuff out there. But those same woods in an area that had just a little more light pollution, you could be right up on it and not, and not see it. It has to be really dark to see that stuff. And I guess it's not the kind of thing that you'd see floating in the air as such or, or you'd see I over think, a, a period of time. I think Foxfire can be easily mistaken because it can, it can, you know, much like those famous, you know, barred owls that sit up in trees is it, it's not always on the ground. You know, it, okay. it can be higher up in, in trees and in places where fungus is growing. So if you're walking around, you know, the videos of it, it's sort of like the Northern Lights. Like videos and photographs of them don't do the real phenomena justice. It it just looks spectacularly weird when you see it in, in real life. So I think about like bioluminescence, like a lot of life forms that have bioluminescence have it for 
reproductive purposes or for right. predatory purposes. I'm not really quite sure why Foxfire has it. What what does it benefit it to have bioluminescence, I wonder? I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, maybe it repels predators. Uh, I don't know if those funguses are edible, but a lot of fungus will straight kill you. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, they will. That I don't know. Or they'll make you see glowing things that uh, that are not actually <laughs> right. there. So. <laughs> So what's the, the difference between bioluminescence and phosphorescence? Uh, I believe that bioluminescence is the biological uh, – it's, it's live animals or plants giving off the, uh, the light, and phosphorescence is inanimate objects, glow rocks, that sort of thing. I'd like to talk a little bit about the great swamp gas fiasco of J. Allen Hynek. Oh, my God. <laughs> so – Sounds There's promising. a lot of ways we could address this. <laughs> do, have you looked into this much, Jerry? I mean, would you like? Or, I, I don't want to throw you. Like, no, no, get, kick, kick that one off because I, I think this okay. is one you, you definitely know more about this than I do. Well, th- this is one of those situations where I, I, J. Allen Hynek is such an interesting character. Okay, so he he's a an astronomer who is hired by the U.S. government to come out and talk about UFO topics, and he starts out as something of a debunker, and then later on in his career. He changes into more of a believer character. He's very interesting. But there was a, what I could only call a, a, a spate or a flap of, of UFO activity in Michigan. Um, I believe it was around Ann Arbor. Yeah. Um, and, um, he was called in uh, to investigate and then told that he needed to give a press conference for which he was not prepared. Mm-hmm. And according to his account, he, uh, uh, remembered that among the correspondence of people who had tried to explain things of what it might be, uh, one was a biologist who said that it might be swamp gas. That, and as he presented this information to a press conference, he was very careful about the way he worded it. I'm not saying this explains all UFOs. I'm just saying this is a possible explanation that swamp gas being uh, lit and glowing might be one of the causes. Now, as he says, uh, he saw, he said, according to Heineck, he literally saw people looking at his press documents, circling swamp gas and running to the phones, right? <laughs> so, now, this is actually happening right now, right now, like within the past couple of weeks, the, uh, this whole Nessie story about a, 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 a the science for the eDNA research. Uh, where they decided that one of the animals that was not eliminated for a possible explanation for Nessie was eels. And that's, that's all that they really said. But, but all the press stories are about giant eels explain Nessie, which is, of course, wrong in so many ways. <laughs> so, I, so I feel a little bit of like PR sympathy for Heineck, but this swamp gas, this, the government explains UFOs are swamp gas explanation has become like the absolute perfect shorthand for the government is lying to us about UFOs. Right. right, right. Yeah, it, it was a dumb <laughs> right. explanation. I think Heineck really was embarrassed that he said it, but he said it. He was pressed to give an explanation and boom, that's the one. Something to be remembered for. Yeah, exactly. That and his ter- I just- terrific beard maintenance. 
I just, I just really enjoy the fact that back in the day, if we needed somebody to work on UFOs, the government would hire a physicist and an astronomer. And today we hire the former front man for Blink-182. So, <laughs> from J.L. Heineck to Tom DeLonge, we've, we've gone a long way. Well, the funny thing, uh, not to go off on a Nessie ramp, but anybody who wants to uh, go back and actually do the hard research of pulling the old Nessie sightings, the original ones that started the whole thing, We'll find that they all happened on dry land and that Nessie uh, was a walking animal that looked something like a big blobular hippopotamus with a long tail. And uh, the first hoaxes related to Nessie were actually footprints in the beach made by uh, Marmaduke Weatherall using a giant Victorian elephant uh, umbrella holder. So for the first five, six years of Nessieism, they were looking for a critter that was on dry land that walked around uh, Loch Ness, and until the surgeon's photo, uh, it, it was not a creature that was associated with being in the water. So, I mean, I, Nessie is is pure folklore, like pure folklore. Or a Shoggoth. A Shoggoth, right. Or an eel with Victorian umbrella stands bolted onto its body so it can walk around. Yeah. As you do, as right. you do. <laughs> Actually, the Loch Ness monster is my least favorite cryptid because it is so obvious bull stuff. I mean, you know, if you visit that place, there's no way there's anything in that thing. So, I mean, there, it's it's just ridiculous. That sounds that sounds dismissive. But <laughs> yeah, that was guilty as charged. It was dismissive. I mean, I'll I'll believe it. Quantum Bigfoot, baby, but the Loch Ness monster ain't ain't happening. <laughs> it, well, it's it's so you know this actually in all seriousness, it really does represent one of those cases where there are so many discrepancies or or variations in the claims of what people see mm-hmm. that a any single explanation is going to be grossly insufficient. Correct. Yeah, I mean it's a collection of phenomena hoaxes, uh, stories uh, that we've now decided to call the Loch Ness Monster. In this case, the real monster all along was uh, merchandise sales, I think. Um, <laughs> unlike our our friendly ghost lights, which are remarkably consistent across cultures and across time. So a, a radically different phenomenon. Are they? I didn't know that that was the case. I thought that they were different in different kinds of climates or environments because – I'm certainly aware of the the Min Min lights in Australia. They're they're very famous. The Min Min light is kind of interesting. They uh, they are they're one of the more recent arrivals and one of the more um, uh, ephemeral of the lights. Like you know, they show up in the Australian outbacks, and there's an Aboriginal myth connected to them that that's actually documented. You know, a lot of these lights, the Joplin lights, and some of these, they'll say, oh, the Indians, you know, the Native Americans had a story. But in this case. Um, the, the Native Americans actually did have a story about it, and it's it's old. It, it it goes back to well before electricity and trains arrived in the outback. The first book about it was called uh, Six. That mentions it was called Six Months in Australia, and it, it relates to it, it shows up in 1838. Um, and there's a little settlement out there called Men Men uh, that's between Belia and Winton, and uh, mm-hmm. they became. Uh, regularly observed in about 1918 and uh, the lights are supposed to f- sort of follow people and approach people 
and then uh, and then disappear. And unfortunately, in recent years, with more light pollution in the area and more um, you know folks kind of coming into the area, they're not being uh, seen the way they used to be seen. And then some people now are starting to to doubt whether or not it was a real a phenomenon at all because there's not any photographs and uh, and it's not something that's showing up that's easily discernible you know from sort of background noise today okay. but the Minmen rites are one of our or one of our our ghost lights that actually goes way on back uh, in documented history before there were sort of mechanical explanations for them no trains planes and automobiles say so i've heard that uh, uh aboriginal people say that the sightings increased after colonization so um, once oh, that, uh, yeah, that, that apparently, I don't know if they thought that you know, European people brought them with them or something like that, but I've heard that the, the sightings increased after that. I wonder time. if it's, it's a cross-pollination of mythology. You know, obviously, That's a possibility. you know, the British settlers, the English and Scottish-Irish settlers are coming in or coming in with a tradition of fairy lore. I certainly mm-hmm. think that's true with some of the light traditions here in North America. Obviously, Will-O-The-Wisp is a British thing, and you hear that phrase used, you know, all throughout the East Coast and the South, uh, where, you know, especially where Scotch-Irish settlers uh, settled in. So I wonder if the phenomenon got sort of of Europeanized uh, whenever folks came in, and they either recognized it or started to give that name to things that they were observing um, in that place. But they, they fit. They're consistent. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of plasma ball of light that appears and sort of follows people and just sort of bobs and weaves and moves. And it's quite different from some of these lights like the Marfa light, you know, the Joplin light, the spook light, which only seem to appear in the, in the distance. Um, I I'd heard that the the Min Min lights were caused by uh, some kind of atmospheric thing with cold air being trapped below warmer air. Yeah, it's like a, it's a atmospheric refracting and reflecting, um, similar to the uh, Marfa lights. That's the okay. popular explanation now, but that's not the description. That doesn't fit what people were seeing in the in in 1838. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the phenomena predate. Like now, you could say, "Oh, look, it's a car." miles away and it, people are saying that it's a mirage and that works like that could be true now but it would not have been an automobile light in the 1820s or whatever yeah in the so. 1830s and the, the, the brown mountain lights have the same problem i, I want to talk about those a little bit like you can go out to brown mountain and see lights all the time because there's lights on the damn thing but flashing lights is not the brown mountain lights it's a different phenomena entirely and it's really strange so I think, you know, we in the modern era of, of, of trains and of automobiles and of ATV lights, which I think are a big problem with Brown Mountain, it's really, it's really easy to see a, a light that's a little bit anomalous and go, oh, I, I got my binoculars. I can now see what that is. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. This episode of Monster Talk is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Browse through their unmatched collection of titles. Select one and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Choosing Audible as an advertiser was easy because I really do use it all the time. I've been an Audible member since 2003 and use Audible to prepare for many episodes of this show. Many of the books we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My pick for this month is World War Z, the complete edition by Max Brooks. If you've only seen the movie, you've missed everything wonderful about this title. Modeled after Studs Terkel's oral history of World War II, Brooks takes us on an amazing series of interviews with the people who fought the war against Zed, the shambling Romero-style zombies who very nearly wipe out everyone. The book on its own is brilliant. Despite a clear sense of humor, Brooks never falls into parody here. Yes, he is the son of Mel Brooks and the late, great Anne Bancroft. But it isn't just the amazing writing that makes this my choice for you. In this audible title, you get an amazing, star-studded cast of voice actors reading the already great dialogue, including F. Murray Abraham, Alan Alda, Rene Aubergenois, Bruce Boxleitner, Max Brooks, Nikki Klein, Common, Denise Crosby, Frank Darabont, Mark Hamill, Nathan Fillion, Maz Jabroni, Alfred Molina, Simon Pegg, Jurgen Prochnow, Carl Reiner, Rob Reiner, Henry Rollins, Jerry Ryan, Paul Sorvino, John Torturo, and, and many, many more. If you love zombies and haven't heard this incredible audiobook, you need to fix that as soon as possible. With Audible, you can listen to your books on your phone, in your car, while you're mowing the grass. And if you're a Kindle user, you can hop seamlessly between devices with Amazon's WhisperSync. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. But I give World War Z, the complete edition by Max Brooks, my unconditional recommendation as this month's Monster Talk selection. To download your free audiobook while also supporting this show, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Now, you're not coming to this from a I sat and read some books perspective. You've actually done no. some research. <laughs> Let, let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. I like because we brought you on not just because you're a great person to talk to and have read a lot, but because you get out there and do some stuff. Yeah. Ghost hunting um, and <laughs> stuff. A little bit of all of it. Um, yeah. 
But I do. I want to. I want to uh, state and overstate that I do come at this from a totally skeptical perspective. I just, I just happen to like to go where the the phenomena is, because you know my my hypothesis is is that if you want to if you want to explain this stuff, you have to take a sort of anthropological approach to it. You have to go out sure. with the people who are having the experience, have the same experience they're having. And then say, okay, what's the emic and edic of this? What's what's actually happening versus what they're seeing? And uh, I've I've always kind of been interested in in mystery lights because I kind of have a pet theory related to them that they're a natural phenomena that has been used to uh, create a, a mythology uh, in Europe. Or and in places like Japan around these critters that live in the swamp and in, and in you know Southeast Asia around the Naga. You know we can talk about that a little later. But I've seen some weird lights myself uh, when I was a kid. You know I grew up in West Texas and I saw a uh, a pretty serious uh, Fata Morgana with my dad and my mom's stepfather. We were basically you know walking down this hill along the Blackwater Draw, clear day, hot, well over 100 degrees. And off to our right, we were basically able to see what looked like a town flipped upside down and sort of floating in the sky. And it was there for a few minutes. And what we realized is that the nearby town of Littlefield, which is about 35, 40 miles away, which would have been just over the horizon, was actually appearing in the sky as a result of this sort of lensing effect. But I mean, it was one of those things that made your hair stand up and sort of made you, you know, feel chilly. And if we walked, you know, too far forward or too far back, it would disappear. It was like, there was this, like this window of space where we could, where we could see this thing. And that's considerably, that's further North. That's in the panhandle, but the Marfa lights are due South of that down in the Trans-Pecos area, and it's the exact same phenomena. It's cars that are appearing sort of above the horizon that haven't crested a hill yet and and uh, and sort of appeared where people can see them. So, And it's a really weird phenomena. So I'd always kind of been interested in these things, and I'd always been sort of collecting a folklore related to them. Well... I'm interested in Norwegian folklore and and old Germanic languages and things like that, which have nothing to do with this paranormal stuff. And I'd always wanted to visit Iceland. And so for my 40th birthday, this was five years ago, uh, just before my birthday in January, uh, Vicky took me to Iceland, dead of winter, gorgeous, one of the warmer winters they had had, clear skies, a little bit of snow, brutally cold. And on our first or second night, uh, we went into this place called the uh, – uh, oh, it's moved now. It used to be next to a place called the Blue Hotel. Uh, uh, we went into this bar, and only us and two American tourists were there. And we sat down with a guy, bartender, manager, brewer, because in Iceland, you know, everybody who works in a place has only one job. And we got him drinking because I can make anybody drink. It's it's a talent I have. We, we got him drinking. <laughs> I bet you can. <laughs> Yeah, and telling stories and all this stuff. And he started, you know, telling how he would do these sort of dinners in this crystal cave. And he knew all the local folklore. And that, like every bartender, he knew every place and everybody. And he was giving us these great local tips and all these places to go that were in none of the guides. 
So we were just drinking this stuff up and my, my wife and these other two ladies go out to the bathroom for a while and I'm sitting there and he's, he's, I've talked him into giving me a big glass of this sort of under the counter that he's got, which is a, a barley wine that was delicious. And I got him to drink it. And I said, you know, I have a, a question. I always hear the story about these elves that Icelanders believe in. And, you know, you're building roads around uh, their homes and you got all these crazy uh, rocks and stuff and houses that you build for them. And it seems like you guys take it very seriously. But you know, I got to know, is, is it BS? And uh, he said, no. And I said, well, <laughs> and I'm kind of laughing. I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, no, I've seen them. And I said, you know, come again? And he said, I've seen them. And I, I've seen them out at this crystal cave that I go to. You know, I'll be setting up. I'll get there right before sunset. You know, and sunset there is like a four o'clock, you know, in the wintertime. So they'll have dinner at six. So he's getting there, you know, fairly early in the evening before the workdays even ended. And he said, and they look like balls of light. And you'll see them moving along ledges and uh, and hills and craters, and they just sort of bob along, and they they bounce up and down. And he gave the Icelandic name for them, which I can't remember, and I wish I'd written down what he called them. And he said, "That's that's the elves. That's when when we talk about elves, that's what we're talking about, and that's how they look." And the old people say, "This is the lights in their houses," or or the lanterns that they carry. But he said, is all I know is that if you go out to some of these places at night, you'll see these balls of light. And I thought, well, I didn't bring any of my research gear. I didn't bring anything with me, but I knew we would be heading out that way because we were going to a place called Kelder, which is mentioned in the saga of Burn Niles. It was one of the places I'd always want to go. It's one of the oldest occupied, you know, residences, in, in Europe or the Americas, I, it's at least, you know, had people living there for 500 years, if not longer. Um, one of the kind of leaders of Iceland had made his farm there who, you know, was one of the early sort of quote unquote prime ministers under the Icelandic parliament that they set up and all this stuff years ago. So uh, for some reason, we ended up out there very late at night. I think we were just sort of out exploring. And, and I mean, it's late at night because it gets very early. It gets dark there very early. We had been out looking, chasing the northern lights. And we had seen them a little bit out at this waterfall. And we decided to tear off down this road towards Kelder, you know, in the middle of the night. And we're cruising along, just sailing down the road, not even thinking about anything. And boom, out of nowhere off to the side of the road, maybe five, 10 feet from the car. And my, my wife's listening. She can jump in. If I make a mistake in this story appears a basketball sized ball of light. And it was maybe three, four feet off the ground. I've got some photographs of it. I'll, I'll send them to you. They're on my other computer and you're welcome to post them. I'd really like to know what, what people think about them. Uh, it's bright enough to cast a shadow. Now you have to understand this is a dark zone. There is, you can check out Kelder on Google Maps. There is nothing around. There is no light. You know, there's a reindeer fence on either side of the road that's taller than I am. And it's just like West Texas. Way off in the distance, you can see a town to our left and to the back. But this thing appears right off the side of the car. And it's bright enough that it, it illuminated the inside of, our, of the cockpit of our car. Vicky slams on the, the brakes. I throw open the door and jump out and literally sort of go after the thing. 
and I can't <laughs> I can't quite get to it. I, I slip down this sort of pile of ice that's off the side of the road. It goes out. I get back in the car, and it comes up on the other side of this reindeer fence. And I'm in, you know, winter gear. I've got hiking boots on. I, we stop again. I get back out of the car. I start taking pictures of it, and I don't have time to set up my uh, – I, I, at the time, I had an iPhone, and I was trying to take some pictures with the iPhone. And then I still had my, my big uh, camera set for the northern lights, so I had long exposure – so I couldn't take fast snaps. So I'm fumbling, trying to shorten the shutter speed and everything to get a fast picture of it. And it's just sort of casually moving along the way. <laughs> I, tr- I literally tried to climb this reindeer fence in, in pitch black. And I was not having, you know, whenever people say, oh, I have this serene reaction. You know, I've told this story a million times and, you know, it's it's always the same. I did not have a serene, placid reaction to this thing where I was just like, oh, there's the thing. I tried actively to chase it. I could not get over this fence. I got about halfway up the fence. I cut my hands up. I couldn't get over the top of it. Vicky was out of the car trying to take iPhone pictures of the thing. Like We did everything we could to get as many photographs of this thing as possible. We were screaming, yelling, hollering. Uh this sounds like me and my fantasy Bigfoot encounter. Like most, most people are like, I, I go, I'm the guy who dives for Bigfoot. That's no, no, this too. is, we're on. If I see Bigfoot, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to choke the SOB and strap him to the hood right. of my car and drive <laughs> yeah. up the steps of the Smithsonian and say, give me my effing Nobel Prize. And right. I, I got a lot of pictures of this thing and I, I've shared them with capital area skeptics and with several people who've, who've done this. I think I've even posted them on the Monster Talk forum. So we, we drive around a lot more. We see it a couple more times. Uh, we make the circle back to Kelder and around. We see it off in the distance at least one more time. So this is sustained. I'm thinking, I'm looking at Vicky, maybe an hour, hour and a half of off and on this weird thing. Totally didn't expect it. Um, and then we had finally got so late, you know, we had to get back to Reykjavik and get some sleep. So we go back. And uh, decide the next day to come back out immediately. Like we sleep for like four hours, we get breakfast, we we totally scuppered our plans and went back out because we wanted to see what was in that field as soon as the exactly. sun. Exactly, you want to see what's this right? What's the daylight look yeah. like? Right? What's out there? It was very easy for us to find find the spot because you could see in the snow. You know my footprints. I lost a hat while I was out there. That I got back. You could see, you know, where we had slammed on the brakes. It was very easy to find the spot. Not a damn thing there. No house, no farm, no field, no lights, not even a well house or a shed. It's just nothing but miles of open pasture for, for reindeer. Uh, did you did you walk out to where the light would have I, been? I couldn't get out there because this fence was so it was it was private property. It was owned by the people that owned Kelder, I guess. Because they had the whole thing fenced, and the only gate uh, was locked with an extremely intimidating padlock. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, I have to. I mean, reindeer or whatever they were fencing in must be hell of hell of jumpers, because this was not like your West Texas sort of um, barbed wire fence that you can just lift and go under. Like this thing, I'm six foot four, and this thing was well over my head, and and it was just impossible for me to get out there. So we could not wow. get out to where we. 
to where we saw it. We were able to get to where we saw it initially before it had sort of passed to the other side of the fence. That was right by our car, and there was nothing there. There was no burn spot on the ground. There was nothing unusual, no disturbance. Uh, nothing. Did it pass through the it fence or through, over the it fence? It passed through the fence. Oh. It appeared. It appeared right off to the right of our car. Mm-hmm. It was big enough to cast a shadow, and that was the thing that that Vicky and I both were freaked out by the most. Is that it? It, it was large enough to actually cast a shadow mm-hmm. underneath the car, and then it passed away from the car through this fence and out into this out into this field, and it it continued to sort of get further away from us. As as the night went on and as it sort of blinked on and blinked out. So one more clarification. When you say it casts a shadow, obviously it's illuminated, so it's not leaving a shadow. What do you mean by that? So Like it, me- it illuminated other things and created shadows? Here's the thing. You know whenever you turn on a flashlight, the light from a flashlight does not cast a shadow itself, right? Like if you, if you, if you hold a flashlight up – um, there's not really a shadow on the floor from the light beam. There's, there's, it, it's not, it's just a passage array of photons. This thing actually cast a shadow as if it were a solid object on fire. Does, does that make sense? Imagine, imagine not a, a ball of light, but a flaming bowling ball. Like as it moved around, it, it was illuminated and then there was light sort of a pool of light around the base of it that was reflected on the ground. And then it itself cast a dark shadow immediately under, under, underneath it. So it was a, it was an object that was completely opaque that, that light could not pass through. It was if something were burning. So it was, that's bizarre. It's very bizarre. See these photos. <laughs> it was not. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll dig the photos off. You want to go back out and investigate again, right? Yeah. We do want to get back out there. The last time we were in Iceland, uh, we were not able to get out to that spot. There was some weather and there was some other stuff to do, but you know, I, I did some research online. I actually, you know, put something on Craigslist. Some dude said that he had seen that before out there, but I mean, I don't know whether we, you know, my my wizard friend from Pennsylvania says that we summoned it, but I think we just got <laughs> super lucky that wizard night. Friend. Um, you know, we followed the bartender's directions, and uh, he actually is a wizard, by the way. He's got a staff and everything. He just used it to block traffic. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That's def- that is the most definitive proof I've ever heard. Make <laughs> <laughs> He's got a staff. Hello. It's like... <laughs> But, um, that's, that's a very that's a very Terry Pratchett it, it is it's, it's, <laughs> demonstration. That is so but, bizarre. Um, so how do you explain it, if at all? I have no explanation for it. Vicky, Vicky, and I tell this story over and over again. I've I've written a couple of sort of fanciful things about it. I've told this story at, at National Capital Area Skeptics and at a couple of other places, but I cannot explain what it is. You know, the skeptic in me. I mean it. I, I I really wanted to believe that it was you know a light on a pole or something like that, but you know, light, lights on poles don't appear off your car and move around. Also, when you adjust the photographs, you can see the pole and the photograph. This this thing is a standalone object. I've got a couple, two, three very high resolution pictures of it that I'll I'll try to send to you in a in the most uncompressed manner possible. Um, I, for, for everything, it looks like a, it looked like a burning basketball. It was about the size of a basketball. It was super light. 
it's pitch black outside and it lit up the inside of our car such that we could see each other. You know, the car lights were kind of a glowing green. This thing was bright orange. Um, and I mean, I mean, it was in every sense a fireball. It was not light that was emanating what I mean by it casting a shadow from another source. You know, it, it was the source of light itself and it was just really weird. And it's exactly what people who have, who have seen these lights and what the guy at the bar said he saw when he went out to that, that part of the country from time to time. I think we just got extraordinarily lucky that night. So for me, the, the mystery light kind of went from being a, uh, you know, some, I was kind of interested into being something that I thought, you know, I really wanted to, to investigate and pursue, uh, more seriously. So did you get an idea of the way that it was traveling? Did you, did, were you able to like, when you thought back over where it went to, like, were you able to get a, a measure of it, its speed? Yes. The nature of its oh, direction. Yeah. It no. was it was moving with the wind. It, it was actually being carried from the time it appeared. Uh, and again, it may have already sort of been there blinking on and off before we got there. But the wind was very distinctly at my back coming in the direction from Reykjavik, uh, which is the prevailing wind in Iceland. Uh, and it, it was being carried uh, away from Reykjavik. And away from Kelder in, uh, you know, counter to the wind. And it was moving about the speed of the wind, you know, sort of like a, a balloon on a, on a lazy, you know, winter afternoon would move if it were floating, you know, in the, in the, in the air. For it looked like a helium balloon that was kind of going flat and wow. was now only about two feet, three feet off the ground and just sort of being carried along by, by a kind of a lazy, a lazy wind. Remarkable. Is there any chance? Uh, this is the most skeptical thing in the entire universe. I'm about to say. I'm actually kind of embarrassed. I'm going to say it out loud. Oh, go for it. I've, <laughs> I've been through all the possible explanations. Is there any chance it was a Chinese lantern, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, that that is kind of my. That would be my go-to explanation if I hadn't seen it. If, if somebody were telling me this story, I would say, yes, it was absolutely, you know, that sounds like a Chinese lantern. But I have seen Chinese lanterns. They, they, I have set them off myself. And I mean, this just wasn't that because Chinese lanterns don't uh, blink on and blink out and they don't pass through solid objects like, like fences. So we're back to swamp gas is what I'm understanding. It could be yeah. swamp gas. <laughs> yep. Now, the other one we haven't talked about much is, and I know we're a little bit short on time here, but it's earth lights. Yeah. And there are people, scientists among them, who believe or who believed before they perished that uh, that that there were such things as basically Earth lights. And there are like natural lights. There are natural things that emit light. I'm thinking here of like the um, well, and this is not this is not a light, it's electricity, but piezoelectric effect. Yep. Uh, there are luminescent effects that happen when you put rocks under pressure. Um, that sort of thing. And I think, uh, it was, uh, was it Michael Persinger mm -hmm. had an idea about, um, what he called anom anomalous luminous phenomena. Yeah. ALP. ALP. And I, and Persinger's also our, our, uh, our Lord of the, uh, uh God helmet. I, I'm not a, a, a Persinger fanboy. I, I really mm -hmm. am very super skeptical about a lot of his work. I, mm -hmm. I, I have had some experiences with, a version of the God helmet and I, I, it doesn't work on me. 
uh, I think I think God is the operative uh, operative word there. I think if you have faith, the thing's going to work on you. You'll experience something, but it it doesn't do anything uh, to to somebody who's not primed for it too. But that's file that under. You see, I really am a skeptic, <laughs> but I, I actually <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> in my other life, I have actually looked into that technology, and it's. Uh, uh, did you have you looked into the Earthlight si- yes. hypothesis? That, that actually, yeah, that's that's what I'm really pursuing right now. Um, the the proper scientific term for the things that everybody agrees on is atmospheric Earthlights, and uh, I mean that's what they sort of catch all these uh, all these various phenomena under. And there's actually been some pretty good uh, peer-reviewed stuff uh, by Persinger and by other authors that have been published on this in a wide range of journals uh, going back, you know, kind of to the 80s. And that's whenever people started to get uh, serious about them. And there's been some pretty interesting adjacent research in f- mechanical physics lately, good old Newtonian physics, uh, that gives us some hope that uh, this might be a potential explanation. There's several kinds of luminescence that relate to mechanical phenomena. The most famous is piezoluminescence. And uh, I I used to love to do this uh, whenever we lived down in Texas. I had a couple of huge pieces of quartz that I'd gotten from Lano where they have very good quartz. They used to mine optical quartz out there too. And I would get, you know, in a dark room and rub them together. And those suckers would glow good. Like you got very strong uh, white light piezoelectricity from that. But there is now a mechanoluminescence phenomenon that's been observed in the laboratory. If you put, you know, certain materials under extremely high structural stress, um, they will emit photons. And I mean, that's a property of light, right? Like light is created when um, electrons jump orbit from quanta to quanta in a, uh, in a, uh, in an atom. Uh, whenever it jumps that orbit, it releases a quant of, of information. And that quant of information is a photon. And that's caused from heating the, the atom exciting the atom uh, through electromagnetism, through heat, or we now know from mechanical stress. So a lot of people are hypothesizing, and it has been observed that these lights tend to occur in areas where there's a lot of geologic action and in places where there's uh, volcanology. So, you know, it's not... So so Iceland's some prime real estate. (laughs) Mountain prime real estate, um, the, uh, the, the Shenandoah River in York, Pennsylvania, where I live now, one of the reasons I, I live there is to kind of research yeah. those. Susquehanna. The Susquehanna River. In fact, a guy told us a story this weekend. Never take stories seriously, but he described seeing some lights very similar to the one we had seen in Iceland. Basically just bobbing lights, you know, moving in and out. Um, so, I mean, the Earth is a big machine, and much like the sprites, it's, you know, the explanation I favor is that this is a kind of plasma that's, because it's not swamp gas. I mean, there's nothing to ignite swamp gas, but plasma plasma is self-igniting. This is a kind of plasma that's being given off um, due to uh, geologic stressors, and Iceland would be a great, you know, candidate for that. I still think that theory is extremely... Uh, difficult to get into a lab. I don't know how I could build that machine without building a, a mountain. <laughs> but we have seen it now on the small scale. We've seen plasma be released through mechanical uh, uh, friction in laboratories. And some of those stories, some of those studies are only a couple of years old. I mean, the most recent one I found was actually from last year. 
we should put some of that in the show notes. That that would be really yeah. interesting. I, I think one thing to keep in mind as skeptics is that um, any of these phenomena, each of them needs to be treated independently and investigated independently because the scenario in one place may not be the same as another. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that that's that's because I, I'm imagining here, thinking back to my one experience with what you know my relatives thought was ball lightning. I uh, I thought it was more of an optical effect based on I mean clearly it was associated with a storm there was lightning in the air but I, I don't think it really happened the way that they thought it happened mm-hmm. but but things about uh, like swamps you know I don't know why people would see swamps like glowing lights in swamps yeah. but the fact that it's re- recurring in folklore again and again. Uh, suggest maybe something is going on there and whether it's a, a natural explanation or not, I would say that there's a highly reflective thing present in all those cases and that's water. Um, so I, I don't know, Agreed. you know, for, for sure, but a lot of light, like lights reflected off of water, light can be reflected off the atmosphere. And when, when that happens, what you're seeing is going to look unnatural because it's not a direct, um, uh, representation of what's happening is reflected, which is going to look a little bit different. So I, I don't know. That may be a factor. I think that's possible. And my dad, again, the propane gas man, the other Jerry Drake, his belief was that swamp swamp lights were caused by small sort of packets of methane that had been released. Because methane bubbles up. Like if you've ever been fishing for catfish, I, Blake, you, I know you've been fishing for catfish. Some, I sure have. You, know, you throw that heavy <laughs> bait out into the water and the, you know, the heavy lead anchor hits the bottom and all these bubbles shoot up because there's that loam on the bottom. My dad's theory was that if there was a lot of static electricity in the air, a spark might, you know, from a natural phenomenon might occasionally ignite a little bit of that methane. So until the methane burned off, you would see, you know, a little bit, a little spark of this stuff. And we know there was a, there was a a town, a village in Africa that was straight up killed by the massive release of methane gas from a lake. So we know that. Oh yeah. That that is a brutal story. That's a brutal story. Yeah. They they were, I'm going to put a correction here. In, in our discussion with Jerry, we were misremembering the gas it caused here. On August 21st, 1986, there was a carbon dioxide eruption, not methane. This was at Lake Nyos in Cameroon. It was quite a disaster. The heavier-than-air gas clung low to the ground and suffocated more than 1,700 people and killed more than 3,500 livestock animals. Since that event, large pipes have been installed in the lake to give a slow release and hopefully prevent another catastrophic outgassing event. Researchers studying the lake after the event found that such outgassing events seem to happen about every thousand years or so. Hopefully this giant pipe will help mitigate future disasters. One other gas release topic that we didn't discuss in this episode is that of methane hydrate. This is sometimes called methane ice, and it exists in large deposits under the ocean. It looks like ice, and you can burn it. In 1998, Dr. Ben Clonell, who was a researcher at Leeds University and who's now affiliated with Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, the CSIRO, proposed that a large outgassing of methane hydrate could cause ships to lose their buoyancy and sink suddenly. Numerous Bermuda Triangle documentaries picked up on this idea because it's very visually stunning if you put it on TV, but there's no evidence that any such sinking has ever occurred. 
The gas deposits aren't near sites of mysterious ship loss, and perhaps more importantly, the Bermuda Triangle itself is a case of people not understanding that in areas with higher traffic, you'll see a higher number of disappearances and accidents. There's nothing paranormally special about the Bermuda Triangle, except that it's a lovely place to visit if you like cruises in tropical waters. And please don't even talk to me about Atlantis being there unless you're discussing the resort in the Bahamas. Back to the interview. So we know we know large quantities of methane can escape from these kind of places where there's a lot of decay. Uh, I mean, if there's a significant, it's quite. I mean, that's no more ridiculous than this idea about mechanoluminescence. If if that stuff had a significant spark there, it it might it might go up and it would light up mm-hmm. long enough for uh, for uh, for that gas to burn off. That is absolutely not what we saw in Iceland. What we saw in Iceland yeah. looked, looked like looked like plasma, and it looked it looked really weird. Um, now, I think I, I have to think that the people who made the Princess Bride in the whole scene with the R.O.U.S. is there's the, the burning yeah, swamp yeah. that that seems like that's heavily inspired by Will of the Wisp, even though it's just a movie. It does. Yeah, it does. <laughs> oh, or, I want to say something about the the piezoelectric uh, effects, too. I just think it's yeah. interesting how this leads into other areas of the paranormal. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of uh, some of the claims that are being made about the Stanley Hotel, the infamous yeah. Stanley Hotel in oh, Estes yeah. Park. There, a lot of the claims are that there's piezoelectric activity which is taking place there, which is explaining uh, – th- that's one of the stories they tell when you go on one of the ghost tours there, that that explains some of the, the ghostly activity. So it's just yeah, interesting. Yeah, it also how- t- it ties into Persinger again, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of the electromagnetic effects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's just interesting. It's being used to explain, you know, several different phenomena. Well, did, you've done some research into that, though. How did that hold up? Um. Oh, no, there's just a, a documentary that people could check out. My husband appears in it, but from a skeptical position, um, basically attempting to debunk that. So I couldn't go into specifics, but yeah, there is a, a documentary out there about the piezoelectric effect of the Stanley Hotel. Well, so I, I don't want to misquote, but my, my recollection was that Matt's work was, it turned up that the geology proposed didn't actually match up, that the actual bedrock under the hotel was not, yeah, they had, doing, yes, they had yeah. the USGS go out there and they did a survey and uh, found that it was just a load of, of dirt, schist. Yeah. <laughs> just a load, <laughs> a load of schist. The whole thing load, load of schist. schist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so all, all of the claims were, were disproved uh, when they went out and did this survey. <laughs> I'm dying. <laughs> People do, do claim to see after the sun has gone down, in in uh, in Llano, Texas, in the central mineral region of Texas, sort of these sparky lights um, uh, on the on the sort of pink granite knobs that exist down there, and those areas are very high in quartz. So you know, I, I have to speculate that that might be piezoelectricity. That seems consistent with two pieces of rock rubbing together under a lot of friction. Uh, you know, to get a bright a bright sort of spark of light. Uh, what they claim to see at Brown Mountain and some dudes who made a documentary on on lights actually got some video of this thing. They actually claim to see plasma orbs uh, similar to what we saw actually leave the mountain. And uh, there's there's a couple of pretty good photographs of that um, that are clearly not airplanes. And that's one thing I want to point out is a lot of these lights, Marfa light, Joplin light, the famous spook light, with a little bit of research, and I mean a little bit, 20 minutes – uh, you can figure out that these are 
uh, optical illusions created by automobile headlights or trains or something like that. And that's what I find so frustrating is that people look into the famous mystery lights and they want to apply that explanation to, to, to all of them. And that does not explain medieval will-o'-the-wisps and some of these really, you know, old, old phenomena. Mm-hmm. Well, in each case, you need to examine it independently. Correct. I, I, I that, that's just that's just good investigation, <laughs> right? Right. And it, we we talk about it, even within a single alleged haunting, you shouldn't look at the whole thing as a haunting. You should look at each of the independent phenomena reported right. and see what they are, because right. collectively, you know, collectively it's a ghost light, but you, is it? You know, really you need to go back and see exactly what was claimed. I'm curious though about your your Brown Mountain case that the though. <laughs> Because um, th- I kept when you were talking about some of the research you did around there, I-, I wanted so badly to say, well, why can't you get multiple teams in different locations spread out using walkie talkies to sort of triangulate around these light effects to see if you can get a better understanding of what's going on? That was what I always thought as well until I visited. And and I mean, you could do it, but you would need a lot of people um the places where you can- what what if i exposed you what's that to 30 or, what if i exposed <laughs> you to 30 or forty thousand people who were interested we, in this? we could get it Would done you- if we had a really now my fantasy my fantasy yeah. <laughs> is that we have in you know the winter in october or november when the lights actually show up but we have a monster talk meetup out there and we have a number of people you know spend a couple of nights at the observation points, and we have a number of people on the on the mountain, and I'll lead the mountain team. The problem is that the lights don't show up for very long. Um, the stuff that's clearly an ATV, that's clearly a car, and that's clearly an airplane, um, which most people uh, say are the Brown Mountain lights, stick around. Like you can pick up your binoculars and see, oh, that's some dude, you know, walking back to his tent. Uh, that's some people who got trapped on the mountain after sundown and they're trying to get their ATV off the mountain. But we sit up there for quite late optimal viewing time. And it took us about three hours to kind of dial our eyes in and recognize the flashing beacon, the cars, what the hikers looked like, you know, what the airplanes passing from behind the mountain looked like. And we saw a weird light. Like it was just a bright light that showed up. Uh, it, it got very, very bright. It lifted off the mountain and it disappeared. And I didn't even have time to get my camera up to take a photograph of it. And then we didn't see anything else at all. Uh, most people who go out and who dial their, their eye in, if they're there during the peak period, will see something really strange. Brown Mountain is weird because it's a mountain in a valley. So between the places where you have to observe it and the mountain itself is a is a lot of distance. And, you know, I, I know some folks who live there who say that, you know, when you're on Brown Mountain itself, you can't see the lights because you're too close to them. So you would need, again, perfect experiment. This could totally be done. And I don't know why nobody's ever done it. You could stage some teams around the mountain over a couple of three nights and have some folks in observation places. But they would have to get to the appearance of those kind of very ephemeral lights in time to, to see what they are. Uh, I have a feeling you would just spend a lot of time running up on, on hikers and stuff <laughs> because the, the actual phenomena as people document only lasts 
three, four seconds. It's sort of like, you know, what, what people uh, describe down in Lano, just a light that flashes on kind of flits away and then, uh, and then disappears. It's like my wedding night. Yeah. But the point yeah, yeah. is, <laughs> <laughs> I think if, if you had a year of planning, like my wedding, what, <laughs> you could make this happen. I, I agree. I, 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 I think nobody's ever tried it. I don't know why nobody's ever tried it. Like, there was a dude. That, why don't we make it happen, Jerry? It. I, think, I, I, I think we should devote a, uh, a, a little Facebook action to it or, or some meetup.com or something. We can mm-hmm. get this coordinated. Yeah, yeah I, I think I it would happen. If, if we start. Start planning now, 2020. Nobody's going to have anything to do in November anyway. Right, right. There's nothing going on November 2020 that is of any importance to anyone besides this. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny uh, because in the couple of cases where that's happened, the Joplin light, uh, the famous spook light, the Marfa lights, where some university professor has gotten fed the F up and actually taken a class out there. They've figured out what they are. <laughs> you know what I mean? But Brown Mountain is it's it's shockingly remote. Like like I said, uh, my my cat Cyan is is from that area. We rescued her while we were out there from a friend. It is deep woods, Appalachia, to be that close to uh to Asheville. It's just really back up in the sticks. And it's uh like like I think it might take you the better part of a day just to get your just to get into position. And I have a feeling that's why like there was a guy who did a lot of research on the mount on the lights in the fifties and sixties, but he did all of his research from this overlook. Like he never got that experiment together where he put people on the mountain to kinda to kind of chase them in person. So yeah, if you got some folks out there and spread them out and got them some bear repellent, because places <laughs> thick up of bears um, <laughs> and not the fun so, kind. So uh, high percentage chance of Bigfoot sighting sounds great. Yes, yeah. and, and it is Bigfoot is all over that place. By the way, <laughs> for the same So that's that's only like uh, that's a five hour drive from my house. So yeah, same, I, I, I think the backyard. Let's let's look into it. Let, and I'm not joking. Let's look into it and see if we can. Oh, maybe we can organize some kind of investigation. No, that is a that is a that is a dream of mine. Uh, Vicky and I desperately want to go back down there. We want to spend some more time. It is it is cold in the winter time. We were there in October, so it's yeah. It's it's not. This is the only this is the only megaphone I have, Jerry. But yeah. I'm willing to shout Let's your name. It. So let's do yeah. it. Yeah. I'm sure, we have some monsters. That yeah. will go out there. Like I said, I'll I'll lead the group that goes up on the mountain. I, I don't mind that at all. I mean, w- worst case scenario, hot chocolate and ghost stories. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> well, worth you, the effort. You have hot chocolate and ghost stories, and I get eaten by a bear. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't have to be faster than everybody. You just need uh, I to just be faster to be than fast. the guys you're with, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, right. that, that is. I'm not. I'm not kidding. I would love to do that. That would be. No, I'm not kidding either. I really, I really would love uh, to use some of. I, I'm just. I believe in our audience. We have enough people in that area uh, who would be willing to yeah. commit some time to it. I, I really do. I think we do. So let's, like, let's see if we can make that happen. Five hours away. And, five hours away <laughs> and me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, if we put, if you can pull it together, I will show I, up. I yeah. have already <laughs> sort of done the, the legwork. It's cheap to camp there. Uh, I mean, you know, it's the hotels are cheap in the off season. Like, you know, it's it's. It's not like it would be an expensive trip. And that's, it, a, that's Micah uh, Hanks territory too. It really is. Can, Micah Hanks is yeah. down there. 
Yeah, uh, we can get I, some uh, get some believers in on it too. Yeah, Why not? I know some yeah. Pennsylvania guys that would come down. So yeah, I I, I know some fairly woodwise guys that would want to do it. So there's there's our our big project. We couldn't cruise uh, the Bermuda Triangle, so we'll go to Brown Mountain and get eaten by a bear. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Although I am going to Bermuda Just next week, my uh, my 20th anniversary. I am going to storm the Bermuda Triangle in in three. You should weeks. do that. Ooh, you should I'm do that. Another shark. Yeah. Are you going to see the uh, Bimini, Bimini? I can't do it. Bimini, me, the B- B- Bimini Road. I'm trying to say the Bimini lights, but I can't get it out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> the Bimini Road. That's in Bimini, yeah. not Bermuda. <laughs> <laughs> I. It's all in the triangle, it's Jerry. That's the there. short thing. It's all down there. I'm going to look over the. If side I've learned of the anything, and I'm going to see your face in the water. In search of what I've watched in search of, I know one thing. History is flat and the world is tiny. That's what I've learned. Time is a flat circle and in search of will be made, remade and remade again for the next thousand years. All right. <laughs> so, so uh, Karen, want anything else before we get to our closer? Um, Not necessarily. I mean, I was going to mention Silvercliff, but I think Jerry's sufficiently covered reflections. I think yeah. that's really yeah, just well, a- Yeah, yeah. I, I, you should mention it though, because uh, it, I've got you've got the Silver Cliff and I've got the uh, Pinjara Cemetery, and they're very similar explanations. You want to talk well, about that? I don't know if Jerry has, is familiar with the the uh, Silver Cliff Cemetery. It's the most haunted cemetery in the United States. In Colorado, know. yeah, 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 in Colorado, yeah. and uh, so it's a tiny little town with about six hundred people, and there's a, a cemetery there uh, where there are dancing lights or ghost lights. So they're, they're these kind of, oh, I mean, the descriptions really range. They can be these tiny little lights or these disc-shaped lights that can be blue or silver or white and that they float or they fly about the cemetery and bounce around the headstones. So a lot of the claims are that the lights have been seen since the 19th century. And I did a, some research on this topic for my book, Haunting America, and found that the right. claims really only go back to the 1950s. And the claims go back to an entry in the local Wet Mountain Tribune newspaper uh, in which a group of teenagers had been driving through the town and they'd seen these lights in the cemetery. And basically, they explained them in this, this first mention that uh, they were just the reflections on the, the tombstones, tombstones, the marble tombstones. Um, but since then, this whole lore has grown up around this place. And, I mean, people really do travel from around the world to go and see these dancing lights and make all sorts of claims about them uh, being the lights of uh, a young girl who was buried in the cemetery or something to do with uh, Native Americans. And just lots of folklore has risen up around that anyway. Um, but it, yeah, my, my source of information on that is your book. So. <laughs> <laughs> and your JREP article. And um, there's a famous, I will not ever give its real name. Most people don't know its real name, but it's it's a cemetery in, in near Houston that's been badly damaged by people going out there and ghost hunting. But the, the, the popular name for it is the Blue Light Cemetery. And ever since the, I guess about the 40s, 50s, this is a story my dad remembered and it's continued to the present day. People have seen that exact same phenomena, and I absolutely believe it is nothing more than car light reflections on highly par- polished uh, marble and granite tombstones. And it's, yep. yeah. Well, I think an interesting well, thing with this, sorry to interrupt, 
an interesting thing with the story is that a lot of people will say, oh, no, this is true. Even National Geographic has covered it. And so I did track down that article. And it's just this really brief mention at the end of a 40-page article uh, in which someone says that they went and checked out these lights. But they pretty much yep. described them as being reflections. But, again, it's just part of the folklore that, oh, no, it's been these lights have been proven by National Geographic that it's something paranormal. That's like that most haunted village that was in the Guinness Book of World Records. And it, it was, Pluckley, but it or? wasn't in a page. It, it wasn't in a, yeah, yes, exactly. Pluckley. It wasn't in like a, an official record. It was just like a bulleted list of like most haunted, most weird, Reports. like little, it was right. It was not, it was not like an official record. It was, yes. No, I mean, so, yeah, how do you yeah, judge yeah, something exactly. like that? <laughs> the most but, 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 but tombstones are because in America, and I guess in some places where they use marble, when they're white and clean, they're highly reflective. Yes. If you're out there at night looking around, even your own flashlight swinging around can create the illusion that a light just flashed through the cemetery. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and a car passing by far away can send uh, a light through that you won't even notice until you're looking at right. your video mm-hmm. and your own video camera will use that as like, it'll, it'll like blow up because it sees the light. And then it looks for all the world, like a, a light has passed through the scene right. and it has, but not from a ghost mm-hmm. from a passing car could be far away. Yeah. So if anything, the phenomena is even more common today, just with the prevalence of vehicles. And video, yeah. Yeah, yeah and but also you... this sort of belief that uh, ghosts live in cemeteries for some reason. And I, one thing I wanted to mention, there's a little bit of pop culture around this. I, 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 I have no evidence for this whatsoever other than the alignment of dates. But in, in 1865, um, uh, Charles Dickens wrote a story called The Signal Man, which is considered his um, – his best ghost story possibly with Hello the down there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's sort of a ghost light, you know, signal man, ghostly signal man in that story. And all, a lot of these ghost lights, the Joplin lights, some of these, they're all, a lot of them are associated with that story. This is a dead rail man. This is someone who died and this is their sort of ghost. And I, I sort of wonder if, you know, the prevalence yeah. of, of these stories around the turn of the last century aren't connected to um, uh, this stuff showing up in, in, in pop culture. So, yeah, you know. their heads come off and they're wandering the rails with a lantern right. looking for their head. All right. Yes. <laughs> and that being said, if people want to read a the best story, in my a well-informed opinion, and it's quite easy to find uh, that feature ghost lights as a plot device is by F. Paul Wilson. And it's called The Barrens, and it's set in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. And uh, I think I first came across it in uh, Cthulhu 2000 about – well, I guess it was about 20 years ago now. That story is so good. F. Paul Wilson is such a great writer, and his take on uh, these mystery lights is so friggin' terrifying. I, every, everybody, if you can put your hands on that story, read it. It's The, it's the Barrens. Okay. Sounds good. It does sound good. Well, Jerry, we don't need to ask you your favorite monster. No. Um, but, but we wanted to sort of have a closing question. So do you have any uh, recommendations for Halloween movies or books or something that people should experience <laughs> for to get their creep on? Here we go. So I got married on Halloween. Vicky and I take this stuff very seriously. 
So your wedding video will be in the show notes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not very exciting, but I could I will definitely send you a picture if I I I got married before they had digital photography, so our our pictures are all 30 and this is our 20th anniversary. And we have oh, and, and I our favorite piece of Halloween lore and the one that brought us together and that we have always loved is the legend of Sleepy Hollow. And when we first moved to the East Coast, the first place we visited on our first Halloween here uh, was Sleepy Hollow on uh, on Halloween. And it was such a rich experience. So our annual tradition is that we watch the animated version uh, 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 that's on uh, – on, uh, Oh, the Disney one. Yeah, the with Disney Ichabod one. Crane and all, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I know all the songs. I don't even have to watch the video to sing the songs. And I will serenade my wife uh, when I'm in a good mood by singing the songs from <laughs> Ichabod Crane. And then we immediately turn around and watch the Tim Burton uh, uh, version, which was a special movie to us. So I'm going to go with uh, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, those two versions. That is that is our annual tradition it's going to be our 20th uh, anniversary this year. We we will uh, we will be here uh, watching those videos and having a nice French dinner, and then getting on a ship and going to Bermuda a couple of days later. So that's that's fantastic. That's, my that's wonderful. <laughs> so at, well, the, Kathleen and I hit our 20th in January. So nice. uh, yeah, that's that's uh, we're on the same we're on parallel tracks. So, so. the. Couple that reluctantly hunts paranormal phenomena together will stay together. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Just like my husband and I. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Same thing. That's great. Well, thank you so much, sure. Jerry, thank for you. spending yes. some time with us. This, uh, this is creepy and fun. And uh, I'll probably throw in a few, like say, some some poems and stuff that I, I read while I was researching this. Great. Um, but this has been something I've been wanting to cover for so long. So this topic. has been a really nice – it really is. And a fun tour – of a lot of glowing mysteries. Yeah. So, and I'll yeah. get you some of those pictures uh, ASAP because I, I really want yeah, to share like those. To see them. You bet. Karen, thank you as always. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I me pre- on appreciate it. all that you and your husband too. Yeah, yes. no worries. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You've just heard an illuminating interview on Ghost Lights, Will of the Wisp, and all manner of lucent weirdness with our return guest, researcher Jerry Drake. If you're interested in participating in a 2020 Ghost Light investigation, stay tuned. If we can generate enough interest, I'll work with some people to see if we can make this a reality. It seems like a fun way to meet up and check out a mystery. If you enjoy Monster Talk, you might enjoy our latest episode of my other podcast, In Research Of the show where Jeb Card and I watch the old TV show In Search Of and consider some of the possibilities the producers chose not to include. This week's episode's on Bigfoot, and it has some really surprising details about the famous Ape Canyon case you may not have heard before. Or you can find it at patreon.com forward slash in research of with no spaces. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. 
We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Special thanks to Sean Parks for his work editing this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. been a monster house presentation and i'm wondering if there's a northern hemisphere max max light that's a corresponding sort of phenomenon <laughs> i'll cut it out you know what it that was that one died <laughs> yeah. on the vine right yeah, it, it, <laughs> yeah, it's when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.